Well, good morning and welcome to Spruce Grove Community Church. We are going to spend some time worshiping our God. Is God worthy of his worship? Absolutely. So this morning we can come with joy in our hearts and give our God all our worship. So Father, this morning we choose you. We choose to honor you. We choose to worship you because you are an amazing God. And Father, you continue to provide all of our needs. You bless us. You take care of us in so many beautiful ways. And today, God, we can come before you and say thank you. And so, Lord, we are going to do that today. We worship you because you are an amazing God in Jesus' name. So let's worship him today. So, Lord, we want to pray this morning. Open our eyes. As the Apostle Paul prayed for the New Testament believers, he said, I pray that the eyes of your understanding will be opened that you may know what is the height, what is the depth, what is the width, the magnitude of the love of God that passes understanding. And so, Lord, we we say we want to know you today. And so as we are worshiping you and as we are reaching out to you and as we are presenting our lives before you, we make this declaration that you are our one true hope. Amen. You know, uh, sometimes we talk about eternal life as something we are going to. You know, we're going to be in heaven forever. And while that is true, uh, John 17.3 says something different. It says, This is eternal life, that they may know you. And he's talking about God. That eternal life is not a destination. Eternal life is not a proportion of time outside of temporal time. It is God himself. He is eternal life. And so our whole pilgrimage, our whole journey is that we would know him more. And so, Lord, we just say today, God, as we continue to worship you, that it is our our life's goal to know you more, to draw near to you, to remove those things that separate you from us, to discover what it is that keeps us from your presence. God, we want to come in boldly because you are a loving Father and you have made a way Through Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you, Lord, that your heart is burning for those that are broken. Your heart is burning for those that are hurting. Your heart is burning for those that are dying without you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that your heart is even burning for those that are angry at the very mention of your name, Lord. For they know not what they do. For the prince of darkness of this world has blinded their minds and their hearts, Lord. They know not what they do. Lord, your heart is even chasing after them. You are even going after them. You are chasing after them. You want to overtake them with your love and your power, your salvation, the fire of heaven to come down upon them, Lord, to burn away the lies, Lord, that have entrenched in their hearts and their minds. I thank you, Lord, that you chase after them, that you chase after them. This is your heart. This is your heart for the salvation of those that don't know you, Lord. You know, part of the message of this song has to do not only with the unbeliever, but the fact that what God began in you, he will finish. What God began in you, that 
This process that was begun, he started it. It's his love. And so I know that there are people right now, and it's like you feel cocooned in a dark place, and and you don't know what's happening, and you keep waiting and waiting and waiting. And I want you to know that God knows the season that you're in, and he has not abandoned you, and he has not left you alone. But there is a very divine process that he's working in you. And the only thing that you can do to accelerate that process is say, God, you are the one. You are the one that's in charge of my life. Lord, I'm not going to believe that darkness has me trapped. I believe instead that I'm in God's divine process. That which you began in me, you will finish. And so right now, wherever you are, God, just begin to say, God, you are the faithful one. That everything necessary for life and godliness is in you. Oh, God, I, I am not wafting in the middle of oblivion. I am not in some faraway, hopeless place. I am in the middle of a divine process. Lord, that is calculated to perfection and that you know every single detail. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. So in the midst of the prison, in the midst of this thing that I don't understand, I say, God, you are great. God, you are great. God, you are great. Faithful, faithful, faithful. Faithful, I will not believe the whispers of the wicked one that would say, God has abandoned you. <laughs> God, you know what you are doing. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me in before and behind and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It is high. I could not attain it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as day, and the darkness and the light are both alike to you. You know, there's two parts to this because, well, there's this great message I heard years ago from Grain Cook, and uh, it was entitled Hide and, Hide and Go Seek, something along that line. And basically, yeah, the idea of this, that, you know, John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to die for us, and we know the scripture but the, uh, the truth of it is this, is that God sent his son into our world 
that he, through his son, might bring us into his world. And the whole reason God has left you on earth and not brought you to heaven is to train you to live and move and have your being in his world. It says God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so what God does is he, is he comes into your world and he touches you, and he makes you love him. And when you start to love him, you attach yourself to him, but then there comes a time when he takes seemingly a step backward into, into a hidden place. And all of a sudden... He's not there anymore. He's not in the typical places. You can't find him in the typical ways. You used to sing this song or pray this prayer or come to church, and suddenly you're doing those same things, and that beautiful presence, that encounter is not there as it was before. And what he's done is he's, he's removed himself only slightly in order that he would increase the breadth of your understanding so that you can seek him in a place a little bit larger than you did before. And he starts to, and what he's doing is step by step, he's retreating into the world that he lives. And this is the, this is the paradigm by which he causes the nations to seek him. And in Acts 17, there's a great scripture and it's Paul. He comes to Athens and he sees this inscription in Athens. It says to the unknown God. And he comes to them and says, man, he says, you guys are really, really religious. He said, I saw this inscription. He said to the unknown God. But let me tell you who that unknown God is. He says, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-apportioned times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they would seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, we are the offspring of God. The odd thing there is, is that we have to grope. We have to grope. You know, sometimes as Christians, now I'm talking to Christians, we thought we were past that. You know, something about groping that's kind of humbling. You know, there's no, there's no dignity in it. There's no sense of accomplishment. There's no performance you know, that you don't look like you know what you're doing. You're groping. You manifest ignorance. You manifest desperation. You manifest hunger. And I think sometimes as Christians, we become comfortable with the poise of being dignified. Hey, I know how this works. And so God says, okay then, 
Let's see if you know how this works. And he does that, so we have to return again and again and again to the simplicity of being children in the sight of God, being ignorant, being without gifting, without where we have to grope again. And if we don't have the humility to express that desperation, then we stay there in this place and we get old and we get dry and we get hard and we spend the rest of our days remembering the times when we did have that moment. But it doesn't have to be like that. He says, listen, I brought you again to this place that you could grope as though you knew nothing. Start again as a little child. Lord, we want to say today that you know we are always children in your sight. And we will humble ourselves. And we will not pursue the posture of the dignified, the posture of the informed, the posture of the superior, or the posture of the perfect, the perfectionist, the, the accomplished servant of God. Lord, we will grope again to find you, to reach for you, because we trust you. And we know that you have a plan. And that everything that happens in our life, it happens that you might bring us into the more that you have determined for us. And so, Lord, in faith we say, God, we want the more today. We want the more that you have planned for us. Can you say amen? I don't know about you, but that song, as soon as we started to sing it, because I did not grow up in the church. And word for word, that makes me think of what God had to do to get my attention. Because I was that guy who was stuck in his own worlds, doing his own things, refusing at any point to say no to him. Regardless of who talked to me about him, it was no, I don't want that. But I'm so thankful that he kicked down every door that was there. Every single door that got in the way. Every single mindset that I had, because I had a lot of mindsets, a lot of issues, and a lot of problems. And so I can stand here today and say, that song is real. That's the God we serve, because that is the God that kicked down that door to get to my heart. And now God has challenged me with this, and I choose to say yes to this call. Now it's my turn. It's my turn to kick down those walls, those issues, those problems, those things that get in the way to say, I'm chasing after my God because he is a good, good father, isn't he? Yes, he is. And so God knows where each one of us are at in this room. Some of you, you're here today because he's saying, I'm kicking those doors down. You didn't even know it. But right now is that moment. I have you here intentionally because I'm not letting you go. That's how much he loves you. And the others, he's saying this. It's time for us to catch this, right? I'm your father. Keep seeking me. It's just like our kids, right? If we keep doing everything for our kids, there's going to be a problem. There's a point where they start to learn how to do it. And that's when they become mature. And that's where God wants us now to take that step as believers. Amen? Is he a good God? That was a good time, wasn't it? Father, thank you for your word and thank you that you are making us able ministers of the new covenant. 
Lord, you're making us, Lord, the ones that are your hand extended to this world. Your word says, Lord, if you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And so, Lord, while we are intent on pursuing you, we pray that we would embody and hold that faith that says, when I do these things for the needy, for the least of these, for the weak ones in the church, for the weak ones outside of the church, when I reach out, I'm actually doing it to you, Jesus. Lord, may we actually begin to believe that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, you think, well, uh, and sometimes, you know, what happens, right? I say stuff like that, and people say, well, Pastor Mark, why aren't you then doing this or this or this? And I, I have to say, you know, God, God has challenged me with the same things, but it's in the context of my, my calling. It's, you know, in the context of what I'm called to do. And the way he's challenged me is going to, to churches with uh, 20 people and, you know, driving two, three, four, five hours and, you know, preaching to 10, 15, 20 people. And, you know, on the one hand, thinking, Lord, I'm called to preach to thousands. And he gives me five and 10 and 15 home groups, you know, for years. That's, you know, that I led a lot of teaching in home groups. But can, if you can't pour out your heart to these few, then forget about pouring out your heart to hundreds and thousands. You really, you don't, you don't really love the people if you can't do it in this insignificant, unknown place. You know, the whole pursuit of a known place, you know, a, a visible limelight, you know, you're, you're lying to yourself. And so everybody walks through that kind of, that kind of uh, um, pruning of your heart in the context of what God has called you to do. So just because I'm maybe not out there giving coats to the homeless doesn't mean I haven't walked through that same testing, okay? Neither does the guy to your left and right. Just take the testing, you know? We don't want to do what... what uh, what, what, what uh, Peter did, right? Remember what Peter did? Right, God, Jesus is giving him a prophetic word about how he's going to be imprisoned and how he's going to die in shackles and how he's going to be, you know, he's, and, and he says, he turns and says, what about him? <laughs> to, to John, he said, what, what about him? He said, what is that to you? Follow me, you know. <laughs> like, and, and, and mind your own business. It's like, but, but it's, so, it's so perfect, right? Don't we do that? I mean, didn't the apostles do the exact same thing that we did, that we do? Yeah, nothing new. So God bless you. Bless you, Lord, today. Amen. All right, I'm going to read a a few passages. I felt, I I was really in a pickle because uh, when I went to Saskatoon with Kim, there was a fellow sharing from Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan, and he got this great word, and actually it's, it's in parallel with something that's been on my heart a few weeks and something that, that God has been speaking to me, or about, at least I've been concerned about in the body of Christ in our church for a long time. But I think I'm going to hold that thing, and for the sake of follow-through, I'm going to just address some things that I felt maybe I didn't fully finish last week. And that way we can have a sense of a continuum, like two messages in a row. Wow. Eh? Yeah, we can do it. We, we can do it. So, Lord, God, remove the veil from our eyes, Lord. Remove the veil that has been our eyes around the law. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that, that the body of Christ would come into a great awakening in regards to the Old Covenant and the New Covenant during this time. Thank you, 
Thank you, God. So last week we covered a few things, and I'll try not to overlap too much. There is a little bit of overlap, and we won't be able to avoid that. But let me read the, the main passage. You remember last week we were reading in Hebrews 8? So, Hebrews chapter 8. Now let me remind you of the, the content of Hebrews. The theme of it is it's written to the Hebrews. It's written to Hebrew believers primarily. And so there's a lot of information dealing with their tradition, dealing with Judaism, dealing with the priesthood, dealing with the old covenants, the laws, because many of them were shocked to discover that it wasn't as applicable in this new era under Christ as it was before, at least universally. And so the writer of Hebrews was writing to them using some of the analogies, some of the pictures from the Old Covenant, and displaying some things for them. He was doing two things. He was appealing to that and creating a bridge between their, for their understanding between the Old and New Covenant, but also he was simply just encouraging them to move forward into God's purposes for their lives. As we do today, you know, one of the things that happens again and again as a pastor is you run into people that get discouraged about their phase. And, and we dealt with that and we addressed that during the worship today. But let me say again why it's important. If you are an athlete and you are aiming for personal bests, the most frequent number of personal bests will happen when you begin the sport. The more accomplished you become with the sport, the less often personal bests come. Not only that, the training, the intensity, the, the endurance that's required to achieve another personal best becomes increasingly grueling and impossible, you know, as you move along. And so you have this twofold thing is the work is harder and and the, the goals are achieved less often. How's that for rewarding? So in the kingdom of God, it's the same thing. And, and the encouragement in Scripture is faint not. Don't stop. Don't stop pressing on. And even Paul, he said, this one thing I do, I press on. I do not consider that I have achieved, but I continue to press on. I continue to lean into God. And so let's continue to do that. But as he's doing that in Hebrews, he hits certain things around the issue of law and grace. And he talks about in Hebrews 1, uh, 8, 1, he says, he says, this is the main thing that we're saying. So last week we talked about that. But I want to move on and focus on the new covenant as defined in verses 7 through 13. So let's read this, but it says this, For if that first covenant has, had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. This is very important for the Jewish mind, because to them, they revered the first covenant. I mean, this was their whole thing. Everything that they had lived for, everything, the tone of all the teaching, all of their days said this, that you are superior in the earth because of this. You are close to God because of this. You are special because of this. And now somebody's saying, this is being replaced. It's like, what? No. How can that be? It's such a treasure. So the Hebrew writer is making a case. He said, listen, God himself promised a second covenant. God himself did that. 
And he, if the first one was perfect, he wouldn't have promised for a second one. We wouldn't need version 2.0 if version 1.0 was excellent. Right, Microsoft? Apple? <laughs> anyway, so he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Actually, I missed a part. Because finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the, old, the house of Judah, not according to the old covenant or the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt because they, were, they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God. And they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none none his brother saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds and I will remember them no more. And that he says a new covenant has has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. A couple of things quickly about that. And, and there's so many things we can say, but, but he says the old one is vanishing. But when something is vanishing, uh, that means it's in a process. It's, it's an ongoing. It is not finished, but it, it has begun. It is in, in, in the journey. And so when he's talking about He's talking about the Hebrews. He said, the old covenant is vanishing. Well, at what pace? How is it vanishing? Is, is it, should I completely disregard it? And why is it not completely done in the other completely beginning? Because the truth is, the new covenant is entered into faith by faith. And so the question is, are you under the old one or are you under the new one? And he says, actually, you're coming into the new one gradually. The effect of the new one happens as your faith apprehends features of that. But the truth is, if your faith has not brought you into this one, then you are still under this one. And that's why we have this this issue, you know, where we talk about being under grace and not under law. Well, again, you're not under grace just because you say, I'm under grace. You're under grace because by faith you have transitioned and you are under grace and therefore you're not under the law anymore. And the evidence that you're under grace is that your life testifies that you're under grace. Hmm, that's a hard one. Well, how does your life testify? Well, the same way it did when the, you know, when the uh, Pharisees were, were standing there and Jesus was saying to him, bring forth fruits appropriate for repentance. He says, you know, don't just hang around me. Demonstrate, demonstrate. There, there has to be some evidence that this is the case. Now, I, won't, I don't want to go into it because it, it gets a little complicated and this is not really where I want to go today. But there's a passage when it talks about grace and law. It says, it's talking about how 
how this, the condition of sin sort of accentuates the beauty and the value of sin. And he says, well, shall we continue in sin? And he, he says, no, absolutely not, because you're under grace. And, and the intimation there is that, is that if you are actually under grace, sin is not possible in your life. The evidence that you're under grace is that you're not, there's no more sin. Well, I thought, I thought no, grace was the, the, the hallway pass because we sin. No, no, that's mercy. That's forgiveness. Mercy and forgiveness go hand in hand. Grace is the ability of God to bring you out of sin and form his nature in you such that that other stuff doesn't happen anymore. Grace comes from the word, it is the, the word in the Greek, charis. Have you ever heard of that word, charis? Is it part of any other word that we know? How about charismata? How about the charismatic movement? How about charismas? These are all Greek words that have to do with the manifestations of God in our life. So the charismatic gifts, the ninefold ministry gifts, are the product of charis in your life. Grace at work, the deposit of God that bring forth the nature, the manifestation of who God is. So grace, grace is an impartation of who God is. And when it's, I'm under grace, I'm not under law, so you can't make me feel guilty. No, 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 no. If you're under, if you have sin in your life, you should feel guilty. Because that's, that's, that's what happens. You can't escape that. Now, but the plan is this, is planning that we don't want to just have this list of rules that say this is bad. We want that list of rules, and we spent most of our time last week talking about it. We want that list of rules to come into our heart so that we don't need the list anymore. The obsoleteness of the list is because I have it. It's like the grocery list. Once you've memorized the grocery list, you don't need the piece of paper. But if you haven't memorized the grocery list, when you go to the store, you need the piece of paper. There's no in-between. You either need it because you don't have it, or you have it and don't need it. There's no version where... I don't have the list memorized, but I don't need the list. And that's the transition. So the reality is in, we are participating in the nature of God in increasing ways. So where was I? Okay, let's go to this next scripture. Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verse 19 to 25 says this. What purpose then does law serve? It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been made by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to all those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under a guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we no longer need a tutor. 
Now, I haven't published it yet, but I did a Watchman Minute here this last week on this very issue. And I was talking, given the illustration of a tutor, if you, if you are learning math in school and your mom says, my son, my daughter is not very good at math, so I'm going to hire a tutor. And the tutor comes in and says, okay, here's this, this is how we're going to do arithmetic. This is how we're going to do math. This is how we're going to do this thing. And you, the processes are all laid out and you, you're learning it. And eventually you start to get it. You start to understand how to do it. And eventually you can do the math without the tutor. Now, once you can do the math, you don't need the tutor. But it doesn't mean you just do the math now the way you think, the way you like. You don't suddenly change all of the things. Now I don't have to do... Now 2 plus 2 is not 4 anymore because the tutor isn't there to tell me it's 4. Is it, does that make any sense? I mean, you don't suddenly just... Well, I'm not under a tutor and now I can do what I want in math. Now, all the laws are, are banished. They've passed away. That has no more effect. Uh, no. So the goal of the law and the goal of the tutor are one. And that's the important thing to understand. The goal of the law and the goal of the tutor are one. That's why when, when Paul is writing and he says, is the law evil? He said, no. The law is good. It's just that the law can't do it. It, can, it only shows you what's the wrong answer, but it doesn't give the right answer. So when he's giving this illustration, it's very important for us to understand that for the, the law to be obsolete, it's like a tutor being obsolete. The tutor is only obsolete when you can do the math the way the tutor wants you to do it. The absence of the tutor does not free you from the math. And this is one of the things that, that Paul says. He says, says, when I'm with the Romans, you know, I, I live with the Romans. And, and you know, I, he's talking about not, not being under the law, except being under the law of Christ. So the idea that there are no moral obligation anymore because we're not under the law is absolute foolishness and aberration. Now, again... What does the law do in my life today? Well, I'm not Jewish. You know, so what reference does it have to me? Romans 2. I'm going to read this and then we'll, go, then we'll go on. I'll try and paint a picture. Actually, I'll read a few more passages. Romans 2, 12 to 16 says this. For as many as have sinned without the law will perish without the law. For as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things of the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing, also bearing witness. And between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in that day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Why is this important? Again, we go back to the same thing, that you cannot get away from the significance of the law by a language that says, well, I'm a New Testament believer. I am not under the law. I am under grace. Because being under grace is an experience. It's not a theory. It's not a philosophy. It's not, 
I lean towards grace rather than because I err. No, 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 that's not what it means. When you are under grace, that means that the work of grace is manifest in my life. And in a minute, I'm I'm going to show you that. The further point to it is this. The promise of God writing the law in your heart causes you to stop sinning. That's what he said right there. He said, listen, even the Gentiles who don't have the law, when they do what's right because they have a conviction, something in their conscience tell them, this is evil, I shall not do that, I will do good. And when they do good, he says, they demonstrate the law written in their hearts. In other words, if we're going to apprehend the promise, if I'm a, I want the new covenant, I want the new promise, then the new promise is when the law is written in your hearts. And what that is, is that means nobody has to tell you, stop sinning. Not, I sin and don't feel guilty. No, you stop sinning. That's how, that's the evidence that you are under grace. This flippant language that I, I'm not under condemnation. No, if you are sinning in your life, condemnation comes to your door. That behavior is condemned. That behavior is judged. That behavior is, is going to result in this in the judgment day. That's, what, that's, what the, that's, that's, that's the evidence. That's what sin does. It carries with it its own condemnation, its own conviction. And so this demonic, religious, false, lying ideal that I can live as I wish because I'm under grace... Is the doctrine of demons. How does this work? Well, let's go back. Let me read two passages. And this is, this is really hard. I remember when I first read these, I thought, what? This is crazy. Romans 5.20 it says this. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Chapter 7, verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, that means before we were in faith, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bring fruit to death. What is the purpose of the law? To establish the difference between righteousness and unrighteousness. That's what the law... The law law is a line of demarcation. Well, don't... Isn't it obvious what that line is? Well, that's that's the issue. The... That line is not obvious. You go from culture to culture, from nation to nation, and people to people, especially down through history. You know, if you've, you've heard anything about, for example, the, the culture, and I recently you can look at the Greeks or you can look at the Vikings or, or whoever it is. I mean, they did unbelievably believably immoral things, and they just never thought at all that there was anything wrong with this. And we're getting to that place right now in our culture where in, 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 even incest is being promoted today. Incest and child pedophilia is being promoted as well. It's just, it's just some people are geared that way. Who are you to say it's wrong? Because that is, that is the dumbing down effect of sin. So the law and what God did to all of creation is he sent the law. He gave it, pulled out a people. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the law. And the law is the definitions of, of good and evil. Now, tonight you're going to realize how much more important this is when we talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And let me give you a little snapshot, because what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, is a pseudo line between good and evil. It's not a real line. 
Because they said, well, if you, Satan lied. He said, if you, if you eat of this tree, then you're going to know the difference between good and evil. But what, unfortunately what happened, mankind was cut off from God. And what is God if not good? So in other words, we got cut off from the actual absolute version of righteousness. We got the ability to decide between good and evil, but we've got no measurement. That's like having a compass with no magnetic north. What good is your compass? It's got no reference point for it. So the knowledge of good and evil, the ability to say this is good and this is evil, is, is pointless if there's no absolute marker. If there's no reference point for that thing to work, you have to find another reference point. And so the other reference point was what I want. So that's why sin and the you know, measure talked about from the societal point or from a culture is men doing what was right in their own eyes. Now, we got, what, what do we have? We have nations, cultures, tribes, languages, where everybody is just doing what is right in their own eyes. So all of a sudden, righteousness is whatever you feel it is says Oprah. Whatever, whatever your truth is, whatever your preference is, nobody can tell you what it isn't. And that's the message that God was bringing into creation through Israel. He said, I am righteous. I am holy. And here's an expression of my holiness in the law. The law was given to to define sin, to draw a line in the sand, a universal line in the sand, a line in the sand for everybody. So when it says there that, that our sinful passions were aroused by the law, it's basically saying this, that the nat- what the law does is, it, is it, it causes your unwillingness to do what is good to come to the forefront. It causes your inability to do what is good to come to the forefront. It causes you to be no longer ignorant that you are fallen. So before, you're like, Woo-hoo, life's good, I do what I want, right? And what, what I want, how can it be wrong? I want to do it, right? And all of a sudden, the law comes in and says, actually, that's evil. What? Now, all of a sudden, these things that I was doing that weren't bad now are bad. So the law, uh, uh, transgression is abounding. But there's even more than that. I remember when I was in Bible college. And God is, because God is working, he's trying to adapt your nature. And sometimes as Christians, after a little while, you get pretty good at being Christian. Right? You know, you're doing the things that ever, you, know, you, you think are important. I'm going to church now, hopefully. I'm going to, I'm praying, hopefully. I'm reading my Bible. I'm being nice to people. It's like after a while, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty good Christian. And, and God actually has, he's not trying to just shape the outside of you. He's trying to change your nature. So I remember when I was at Bible college, I was there and I read this scripture let me read it again because it's very important that we understand this because there's something spiritual about the law. The law just isn't this list of, of commands. It is something 
that energizes the fallen part of you. Can I, can I say that? Do you understand that? If there is unredeemed flesh at work in your, in your life, the law will cause that. It's the grass is greener syndrome, right? I didn't want that thing until they said, don't, you can't have it. Oh, I can't live without it. What is that? You didn't even care about that thing. And so it said, don't walk on the grass. I wasn't about to walk on the grass, but now that it says don't walk on the grass, I want to. So I'm at Bible college. And, you know, I'm doing a, being a pretty good Christian, but I'm noticing, man, they got all these annoying little rules. And it's like, I don't see the importance of these rules. Therefore, I am above them. Well, as it turns out, they had a system of enforcement that I despised as much as I despised the rules that I thought were not important. And what's the point? Is the point, well, who made you, let me, let me back up. I, I, I would get really mad about it because I think these are pointless rules. And then the Lord said, show me this scripture. He said, it's not about the rules. It's about the thing inside of you that the rules harness just because they're rules. The thing that rises up in hostility because of the rule is the part of you I'm trying to change. And the fact that something rises up says that something's still there. It's a gift, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, after a little while, you know, I'm I'm a pretty good Christian. I lift my hands. You know, that guy the other day, I wanted to swear at him, but I didn't. You know, I went to church. I gave 10% tithe. Oh, yeah. Not last year, but this month. And you have all of these things that give you a sense of accomplishment, a sense of, I'm doing pretty good. But you know what? God is not interested in you doing pretty good. Did you know that? He said, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. No. That can't happen. Why, why has he set the bar so high? Why didn't he set a, a bar lower so we can feel better about ourselves? Because, you know, clearly, according to Oprah again, if I feel better about myself, then everything works from that point. He said, no, the law is set to give life to something that shouldn't live. The law energizes something that God's trying to kill, except you don't know where that is. But Paul says, it's in me. He said, in my flesh dwells no good thing, such that what I want to do, what I will to do, the good that I want to do, I cannot do. Instead, I find myself doing the, the opposite <laughs> tractor beam. What is this? He said, it's something that needs to die. So we're in this predicament where these things are coming alive and we're trying to not do them, but we are doing them. What, well, what value is this to be in this tension? You know, is this Christianity in this, in this tension where I want to do the things I shouldn't do? And What is the outcome of that? Just tension? In the tension. In the tension. Desperation. In the tension, a groping. In the tension, a reaching. In the tension, ah. See, if you're oblivious to the fact that you're not meeting the requirement of being holy as he is holy, 
there's no tension. But there's no groping. There's no hunger. There's no passion. There's no reaching. There's no goal. It would be like living in a small Saskatchewan town where you're one of the best hockey players and being unaware that there is anything better than what's happening in Flin Flon, Manitoba or Porcupine Plain, Saskatchewan. This is the very best hockey there is. It's utopia, right? But all of a sudden, God said, no, I want to introduce you to my holiness. But the initial introduction of holiness is you don't do that. I feel less. Yes, information is painful. Knowledge initially is painful. But this, the, the kind of knowledge I want to bring you to begins with just, just this is the line. And the next phase is an impartation of power that causes you to <clears throat> leap over that. And the evidence that you're over that is that the dilemma is not there anymore. So this is a world people live in trying to justify, trying to get rid of the tension, trying to make it non, non-existent, and trying to, well, how else do I deal with the guilt? Uh, by faith? What does that mean? I have to, uh, because faith says I'm guilty, but it has the courage to step forward anyway. Because guilt says, don't you dare draw near to God. But the righteousness of the blood of Jesus and the payment that says, even though I, I, I feel unworthy, I'm going to step forward anyway. I'm stepping forward anyway. No, no, no. I want to be free from guilt, so then it's easy to step forward. Can I, then I can say, ta-da, I'm here. No, that's the very thing God is trying. He doesn't want you to draw near to God because you think, I'm so great. Faith is, I'm drawing near to God, knowing I have, cannot meet the requirement, but believing in the mysterious dynamic of Christ having met my obligation, even though I'm... It's not completely resolved. I'm not absolutely sure. And I feel everything inside me wants to go and hide from the face of him. But faith says, no, step in. See, the world is caught in this thing. And unbelievers, believing unbelievers, unbelieving believers are caught in this thing where they're they're stuck by guilt and shame. And they're saying, I... I think the solution is not to have guilt and shame, so therefore don't tell me there's anything wrong with me. No, the solution is him, not a better version of you. And when he becomes your solution, a better version of you emerges, but not by convincing yourself that I am as holy as God or that God was, that was just tongue-in-cheek, be holy as I'm holy. He didn't really mean that. And some of us have sort of capitulated to the idea, well, I'm just a sinner. So I'm going to keep going to church and just do whatever. Seared conscious, I'll just do whatever. Because I can't get over it. I'll escape the the tension that way. It's just, you know, it's what I do. Sin all day long. Ripped open, torn asunder with lust. But I tried, can't get over it. So turning that voice off. I'll just do what I want, but then I just, you know, God God forgives me. 
You may have escaped the tension in your mind and your emotions, but you haven't. Transformation. The law written on your heart is transformation. It's you have a new nature. You have a new nature. It starts by resisting sin. You know, it's like, well, how do you, how do you be on the cross like Jesus? People spitting on you say, Father, forgive them. I don't know what they're doing. I mean, they don't know what they're doing. You know, it starts by turning the other cheek when you don't want to. You know, that guy, he hit my cheek, he hurt me, I want to hit him back, but I won't. That's not righteousness. That is, that is an attempt towards righteousness. That's the first. That's just you saying to God, I, I want this. But you realize this, you know, but inside I want to kill them. I want to poke their little eyes out. That means you're halfway there. You, you're recognizing there's something in me that's wrong, but I'm not all the way. The law is telling me that's wrong. That's wrong. But I'm not into the place where it's not there anymore. You're in the tension. Don't leave the tension. That's not a solution. That's not freedom. That's lawlessness. Lawlessness is lawlessness. No law. It's Greek. It's very complex. There is transformation. This is, what I, this is the promise. There, the promise of the new covenant is I will write my law on your hearts. I will take my nature and literally put it in you so that you actually love God and love your fellow man. You actually really. Not you just hide the fact that you look upon everybody with pity and scorn. Dogs. But you actually... God, these poor people victimized by sin, victimized by demonic powers, God, save them. The miracle is where we actually start to think and feel like Jesus. The law is just the first step saying you don't. You can't change that by abolishing that piece of information. But there's a, we're coming into something. So, Father, and and this is what everything else, worship and prayer and 21 days of fasting, it's like we're leaning into you, God. We're leaning into you again. We're leaning into you again because because we know, like Paul, there's there's no good thing that dwells in my flesh. And I, I, from time to time, if not regularly, I feel this sin nature. I'm not going to lie to myself and say it's not there. I want to be free. Free indeed. In reality, this is what it means. Romans 8. I want to be free in reality. Now, how long is that going to take? Well, Paul said, I've been at this a long time. I've been pretty zealous about it, and I do not consider that I've attained. Well, if Paul, the super apostle, can say that, why can't we? Right? What, What is so shameful about recognizing that there's places where alien beings rise up from the midst of the tar of our souls. Occasionally over dishes and child rearing and poopy diapers, sometimes at work, sometimes in the church. Christmas time, yes, Christmas time. So, well, you know, God knows I have, therefore we're good. No, we're not good. 
We're still saved, but the objective of salvation is an increasing transformation until all that comes out, when they're even killing you, you're praying for them. I can't even pray for them when they're passing me on the, on the freeway. Where you got to go that I don't? All that kind of transformation is impossible. No, it's not. There are people who actually enjoy others passing them. Not I. We all have our stuff, and that's why we're there for each other. Because where, where God's nature is in you, and I see that, it tells me I can be like that. It stirs hope in me. You stir hope in me. When I, my wife stirs hope in me. How can anybody be that patient? How can anybody be that nice? At first, it's like saying, you're not very nice, Mark, as compared to this. Yeah, but I don't think it's real. She's a good actor. And the more I've been married, I realize, no, she does, she does care. Man, what am I? That's what we are to one another. Hope and righteousness. I pray right now that the promise of Hebrews chapter 8, 7 to 13 would be ours, that God would write his law in our heart, that we'll find ourselves living, thinking, doing like Jesus would without a silly rubber band around our wrist. You know what I'm talking about there? What would Jesus do, reminders? You know, we... We shouldn't have to have our mothers say to us, remember you're a Christian every time we go out. I know nobody does that, but I want transformation. And this journey is gradual transformation. So, Father, I want to thank you that, that uh, we're not afraid of being judged by the law of Jesus Christ. We're not afraid of being judged by, the, by Jesus Christ according to the gospel of Paul. Lord, we are rising to the promise of transformation. God, this world around us desperately needs not an empty form of righteousness, but expressions of God in man, expressions of God's compassion, God's care, God's God's love in us. So, Father, I pray, starting with each other, that we we could authentically begin to love one another. And God, when we find ourselves rubbing up against each other and annoyed, we'll not justify it. We'll not put the blame on them. Well, if they didn't wear that coat, I wouldn't be so annoyed. If they didn't talk like that, if they didn't park in my spot, if they didn't sing too loud, if they didn't sing too softly, if they didn't exist, I wouldn't feel that way. Lord, we want to stop lying to ourselves. You are on the cross dying, bleeding, in pain. And your heart went out to the soldiers. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Amen.